Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning once again to the Gospel according to Mark, where we are going to be looking together this morning at verses 31 through 35. That's Mark chapter 3, 31 through the end of the chapter, which ends with verse 35. Well, Mark, as I've mentioned to you many times now, has been endeavoring here in the Gospel account bearing his name, to get before you the biblical Jesus. That is his mission. He's not interested in promoting a Jesus that seems to fit nicely into the whimsical mind of man. He's not interested in a Jesus that becomes yet another idol in a vast sea of idols. He's not at all working to help you fit the real Jesus into your own neat and tidy system of thought. To make him fit and meet all of at least your perceived needs. No. Mark's mission is simple. His mission is to show you the Lord Jesus Christ as he is revealed in his word. And beloved, I trust that we've seen that here. Last week we came to a sort of crossroads in our consideration of the real Jesus or the biblical Jesus that is on display for us in the gospel according to Mark. And we had to kind of stop and I have to ask the question, right? What do you make of him? In our evaluation of his revelation we find that really there are only two answers that we can come to when we consider it. What do you make of the biblical Jesus? There is belief. And of course there is unbelief. I've said many times that truly that is the great division of all of mankind, all of humanity, since the fall of our first parents in the Garden of Eden. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of the kingdom of God goes out. And being a two-edged sword, it does the necessary work of separation, of division, right? One is called by God through grace and mercifully given saving faith by Almighty God and is then empowered by the Holy Spirit to embrace that gospel as the truth. Not just a truth, but the truth, the whole truth. The most important truth that we can come to know on this side of the glory of heaven. We get an excellent description of it. That faith, that is faith that embraces the truth in the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 21, what is true faith? I know many of you know it by heart. What is true faith? True faith is not only a sure knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word but also a hearty trust, which the Holy Ghost works in me by the gospel, that not only to others, but to me also forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. That is one side of the great divide of humanity. God equips you with knowledge through the word of God and empowered by his spirit. That knowledge then does something. 
that leads you to believe God. Not just a mental assent, not just a superficial nod towards God and his word, but truly to believe God, to trust the word of God, to take God at his word. That's one side of the divide. Mark, however, does not begin there, does he? At least not directly. Though there is a sense here in which he never stops really describing that true belief, faith and action throughout the entirety of this book. He begins, though, with what we looked at last week. He begins with the foolishness of the other side, the folly of unbelief. And last week we considered that specifically through two subgroups within that group, the unbelief group, if you will. First, we considered Jesus' immediate earthly family. And we're going to get to them in just a moment. This is what I would consider to be a more hopeful group that falls initially at least into this unbelief category. They must do something with what they know of Jesus Christ. And currently, at least in the context of this narrative, they're really not at all sure what to do with with him, what to make of him. They hear of all that he's doing. He's teaching with authority, and it's a strange authority. It's a much higher authority than perhaps they're used to with the scribes and the Pharisees. He's casting out demons. He's healing the sick and the lame. He's fixing, or he is undoing, if you will, some of the visible manifestations of brokenness that are all around them and always have been. And his fame is, of course, growing. The crowds are rapidly increasing. They're getting larger and larger by the day. In fact, these crowds are getting so big as people run to be touched in some way by the ministry of Jesus that Jesus and his disciples are being visibly wearied by their work. Mark tells us they were so involved in this work that there was not even time for them to sort of pause and take a little nourishment, to eat a little food, or to get the rest that their bodies so desperately needed. And Jesus' family hears of it, and they in their doubt decide that what needs to happen is that they need to go, and they need to physically remove him from his current situation. Because the only answer that seems to fit with their doubts and the cloudiness of their judgment is that Jesus has lost his mind. He is insane. And the solution is that they need to make haste to him and they need to get their boy out before things get any worse. The foolishness of unbelief takes in the revelation of God and reasons that Jesus must be insane. Now, I want to point out here that this is an unbelief that is not without hope. Right? God will, in his mercy, open at least some of their eyes. And we're going to get to that in a moment. But the other group within this larger group of unbelief were these scribes who came down from Jerusalem to deal with this Jesus of Nazareth and to see what all the commotion was really all about. And they go even further in the foolishness of unbelief. And they actually lay charge to the motives of Jesus. 
They say, in effect, no, this man is not insane. He's certainly not the son of God. He's evil. Right? He's a monster. He's doing what he is doing by the power of Satan. And it is the kingdom of Satan that Jesus is attempting to build and to promote. They charge Jesus with being a sinister imposter and belonging to the devil himself. Of course, Jesus annihilates the illogical foolishness of that argument. We spent quite a bit of time in it last week. How can Satan cast out Satan? A kingdom that is divided against itself cannot and will not stand. Jesus is the stronger man who binds the strong man and who then plunders that strong man's house, right? We saw the the beauty of the gospel in this situation. And I'm not going to go back into all of that again. I trust that you saw last week the beauty of the gospel that is really on full and complete display as Jesus lays it out for all of those who are gathered here that he is the Savior The Messiah who has thrown down the kingdom of this world and Satan and having done so, he is taking back his church. He is setting the captives free. It's a beautiful story of redemption and beloved, it should fill the people of God with joyful hope to see it and to live in the light of its truth. And in the text before us this morning, though Jesus continues to address the power of the gospel itself and the wonderful effects upon those whom God has blessed with faith, faith to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and to embrace life in union with him by faith, he's speaking here and now about the second group. First group was unbelief. The second group is belief. Having made clear for us the folly of unbelief this morning, we begin to unpack not only the wisdom of belief, beloved, but the comfort, the peace, the joy, and the brilliant glory of belief. So will you please follow along with me as I read from God's holy and inerrant and infallible word, Mark chapter 3. Again, I will pick up with verse 31 and read through 35. Hear now the word of our Lord. Then his brothers and his mothers then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle those who sat about him. And he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us clarity as we look to your word this morning. I pray, Father, that you would Open our eyes to the wonderful truth of the gospel and that seeing it, we would live in a way that is glorifying and honoring and pleasing to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Strictly because of the the time 
involved. I split this section here that begins with verse 20 and really runs through the end of, the ser- uh, the end of this chapter into two sermons. And last week we looked at the first of them, right? Verses 20 through 30. And there is so much to take in here. However, I want to point out to you this morning that really this one section really does belong together. 20 all the way through 35. Jesus is before you. And you can react to his revelation of himself in one of the two ways that we've already described. And this morning we are returning now to the reaction of Jesus' family that he brought up in verse 21. His mother, his brothers, and his sisters. In verse 21, Jesus' family hears about all that is going on in and around Jesus' life. And they rationalize that Jesus must be out of his mind and so they set out to go and to get him. I told you the the Greek there is that they were going to seize him. It's the same word used later in Mark's gospel account uh, for when when Pilate came, or when uh, Judas came with the people to seize Jesus, to place him under arrest. So we pick up now in verse 31 where apparently they have arrived at this crowded house where Jesus and his disciples are busy with ministry And it's so busy that they cannot even get to him. The crowd is too dense. And so they pass word to get to Jesus that they are waiting for him outside and they want him to come out to them. And Jesus' response to that news prompts what many of us, I am sure, consider to be a somewhat shocking answer, right? If we take this on the surface, if we don't stop and and think about what's going on here, it's shocking. Perhaps when we consider who this really is, though, it should ease our shock at least a bit. Jesus only hears that his family are outside and they're waiting for him outside. That's what he hears. But of course we realize he knows more than this, right? We're talking about God incarnate, God in flesh, that's who Jesus is. He knows everything that's going on around him. This is the Jesus that Mark has been revealing in power and glory from the very beginning of this gospel account. Jesus knows exactly why his family is there. He knows all things. All things are subservient to him and so he's using this occasion to make his hearers think about who he is and what in fact he is doing and why it matters so much in their own lives we have to see it there's so much here we're only just barely scratching the surface of it this morning there are things here for us to consider that are implied both directly and indirectly because of what Jesus says in verses 33 through 35. But before we dig into that, it probably needs saying that over the years of the church's storied history, there have been many who simply do not accept that this is Jesus' family here. We talked about some of those reasons last week. And I don't want to spend too much of our time on it, except to say that I think it really does point to a real problem historically 
in the way that we have attempted to sort of deify Jesus' earthly family. Or at least we've tried to sanitize his earthly life a bit or to clean up the narrative of his story. And I want you to understand, I'm not just speaking of the Roman Catholic Church and their view as, of Mary as being a, a co-redeemer or a co-redemptrix here, though they certainly have that, done that with their doctrine of Mary's uh, perpetual virginity and her being a co-redeemer. They would have to deny that there were actual brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. I think the Bible proves that wrong. And I don't want to go into an apology of that this morning. I think if you look at the witness of the four Gospels, you would say that Jesus was one of probably at least eight children. Four brothers, we know of for sure, and at least three sisters. But there have been attempts made even within the Protestant church, to sort of sanitize the earthly life of Jesus Christ. And again, because of the time, I don't want to list all of those errors out to you this morning. Read any respectable church history, and you're going to see it plain as day. It comes up again and again and again. But I do want us to stop and think for a moment about why it's such a big deal about what's at stake when we do that. We know that Jesus was, of course, blameless in the eyes of the holy law of God, and he needed to be in order to be uniquely qualified to be our one great sacrifice, to end all sacrifices, to be our redeemer. However, his life was nothing like clean and pretty. From the very moment of his birth, his life was gritty and raw and difficult. He suffered a lifetime of suffering. He loved and he was hated in return for that love. It was a difficult life and it was a real life. It was a human life. And I would make the case that that life needed to be exactly what it was. Our sin made it necessarily so. Because Jesus did not live a life of ease, the author of the letter written to the Hebrews can say with confidence in chapter 4, verse 14, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Beloved, do you understand what I'm getting at this morning? We do not need a Jesus who was surrounded by a sanitized life. And really, that's what's at stake here. If you spend your time trying in vain to make the life that Jesus lived cleaner, more pleasant, more not at all surrounded by the brokenness of a broken creation, you miss the point. That we desperately need a Savior who is both man and God. Humanity and deity. Only man could come and pay the price that man had run up in his sin. He had to be a, a, a true man. And only God, only deity could somehow remain sinless as all the sin of humanity was laid upon his shoulders. 
The humanity of Jesus Christ matters for our salvation. Do you understand that? We need it. And he experienced the weaknesses of our flesh, sin accepted. You say, well, what does that have to do with this? Jesus had a difficult family. Do you recognize that? This is a world filled with sin. Everyone is infected with Adam's sin. Jesus accepted, including his family. And we have to grasp that. In John chapter 7, verse 5, we're told that Jesus' brothers did not believe him. Now, in Mary, it gets a little more difficult. We talked about it last week, but we'd have to say that her faith was probably clouded even by the difficulty of watching her son run himself into the ground, destroy himself. And again, we're reminded of the realness, the genuineness of this entire situation. Jesus can truly, in a very real sense, sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows what it means to struggle with this flesh. He understands what it's like to live surrounded by the brokenness that is such a part of our lives. Do you recognize that? Is it a comfort to you? Broken consciences, broken relationships, broken families, broken hearts and minds. All the result of the fall, all part of the curse that Jesus condescended, that he came down to this world in order to undo. Jesus understood the messy family stuff. He understands everyone whose home situation is complicated and difficult, even heartbreaking. Do you see it? Beloved, you are not alone. In your struggle. You understand. Your savior. Knows. And not only does he know. The witness of the word of God. Is that he knows. And he sympathizes. With your weaknesses. He's compassionate. Towards you. And your difficult situation. He has been there in flesh and made his grace available to you. Do you believe that? Beloved, I'm telling you, we must. This is part of our hope. Of course, there's much more here. I mentioned to you earlier that what Jesus says in reply to his family here has both direct and indirect implications for us to consider. Look at what he says beginning in verse 33. He says, who is my mother or my brothers? And it says that he then looked around in the, in the circle of those who sat at his feet, those who sat about him, and he said, here, here are my brothers and my sisters. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. It seems on the surface at least to be kind of a, a harsh word for his family, doesn't it? Making the... 30 mile or so trek to where he was. We have to understand, Jesus knows at this point they were but dupes of Satan in this story. 
praise be to God that that's going to change for many of them. They would not remain in their unbelief, but currently, in this current context, their doubts were the louder voice. They were there to unknowingly try to thwart the redemption of God's people. And of course, Jesus will not have it. He will not be stopped. He's making his way towards Calvary where he will end the battle for eternity. So I tell you that it is not harsh, but it certainly is the truth. He is not replying here like an exasperated teenager. He is simply making it clear why he was there doing the very things that he was doing. He was plundering the house of the strong man. He had bound Satan and his temptation in the wilderness. He's now setting the captives free and he would not be stopped from his mission. No one would be carrying Jesus off on this day. He will not be sidetracked by pressure from his family, family whom he clearly loved. We see it at the end of his life, even from the cross, the agony of the cross. He looks down and he asks John to take care of his mother. He loved her. But his family is going to come up empty-handed in this exchange. And again, there's more than just that. Consider first what is indirectly being said here, right? We could, we could pull out many of these, but here are just a few. Faith here is clearly represented as being granted by God for God's purposes and not at all guaranteed by familial affiliation. And we have to see that. You see the tie here between the true family of God, who they in fact are, and why they are. They are those who, who obey the call of faith graciously given to them by God, and they run to Jesus. These sitting at the feet of Jesus are the ones who heard the siren call of faith upon their hearts, and they have made haste to get to Jesus. Not to stop his redemptive ministry, but to wholeheartedly embrace his redemptive ministry. And they seek only to glean from him all that they possibly can. They are sitting at his feet, biting on every single word from his mouth. They're devoted to him and to his teaching. It brings me to the second thing here. We also see implied sort of indirectly here that misplaced devotion will not earn you a place at the feet of Jesus. We have to see that with Jesus' family. His family seeks to exercise their family rights, and it's born out of at least what they think is a concern for Jesus' safety, for his health, his well-being. And so they say, go, tell Jesus that we're here. But in effect, Jesus says to them, who are you, really? Behold, these here at my feet, these crowding into this house, these who have been flocking to me for days, who've left everything to follow me, they are my family. Who then are you? Why are you exercising family rights when I am here on behalf of my Father in heaven to redeem my people from the curse? 
Those who obey the will of God, they are the family of God. Those who answer the call of the gospel, they are the family of God. And beloved, what is the will of God that Jesus is talking about so plainly here? Is it a mystical, unknowable, elusive, even secret will? Well, of course not. What do these people sitting here have in common? They all came to Jesus. They all answered the call of God. And all of them came from different situations, from different complications, different struggles with the sin that so easily ensnares them all. They are all sinners running to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Their obedience is wrapped up in his obedience. What is that call? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the message of the kingdom of God. Jesus came with salvation in his wings. He came to remove our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. He came to bind Satan, to plunder his house, and then through his death and resurrection, to seal the salvation of his people for eternity. Do you see that? This is what it means to be a part of the family of God. You belong to Jesus. You are his. He is yours. And he has made you clean. Through him you are an adopted son or daughter of the Most High God. Beloved, do you get a sense of the love of God for his people that is on display here. We are his brothers and his sisters. Do you believe that this morning? This is what matters. You have answered the call of the gospel. You have recognized the filth of your own sin by the grace of God. You have repented of it. You have looked up from the mire and the filth of it all. And you have laid your eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ and found in him all that you could ever truly need. And you've done it by faith. Faith that God gives. You now have his perfection. You have his righteousness. You have his obedience to the will of the Father in heaven. It's truly now as if it were your own. And so we have these two things here. We have the folly of unbelief. Unbelief seeks to do literally anything else. It tries to rationalize from unbelief and it makes a fool of itself. It, ma- it, it is exposed. It is unmasked as folly. It tries to lay blame at the feet of Jesus rather than praise Jesus. It attributes the work of God on behalf of his people whom he loves to Satan himself. It hangs on to unbelief with its dying breath and it receives its reward, the justified wrath of Almighty God. Unbelief. And we have belief. It knows by the grace of God. And then moves from knowing to trusting. It takes God at his word. It's willing to sit at the feet of Jesus and hang on every word that proceeds from his mouth. 
It embraces its true family. And it does what it must. It loves to the glory of God. Which brings me to the one application that I would like to make for us this morning. Beloved, you might be saying to yourself this morning, okay, Steve, I get it, right? There's a real contrast here between unbelief and belief. We all see it. It seems simple enough. The text is certainly clear. Why is it such a big deal? What really does any of this have to do with me and my life? What does it have to do with my family? What does it have to do with my church? Well, I'd like to answer that question by first asking you another question. It's a simple one. Who are the most important people in your life right now? I know what you're thinking. Steve? Are you actually going to suggest that I am to place others over even my own family? You're not going to suggest that, are you? I'm not going to suggest it. I would just refer you to the Lord Jesus Christ that you're here to worship this morning. What would he say? He said it already, right? I want you to look around this morning. Look around here in the house of God, in this sanctuary, in our little town, in our little church, in our little place, our time and place to worship in the kingdom of God. I want you to ask yourself what this text of sacred scripture says to you about all of these. What does it say? Beloved, I need to say something to you. I'm going to meddle here a bit because I need to. I must. We need to take this to heart. In the dozen or so years that I've been the pastor of this church, I have rejoiced over many things. As I have shared in this life together with so many of you, and it's not all been easy. We know that. I've certainly witnessed sin, much of it in my own heart and some of it in many of yours. Some of it is more heinous than others, but all of it is destructive. All of it does what sin does. I want you to look around at what the Lord Jesus Christ has called your family if you are truly redeemed in him. And I want you to ask yourself something. What could all of these do that would justify your irritation? Or worse, your hatred, your gossip, dirty looks, mean-spirited comments. Is it what they say? Is it what they do or do not know? Worse yet, is it what they wear to church? Is it that they're not from here? That they don't have a, the right heritage, the right denominational pedigree, the right ideology, and by right I mean your ideology? 
But they do not know the language or the innumerable unwritten rules. They do not take service serious enough. Is it that their kids are just too loud, too disrespectful in the church? You know, it's funny. No one has ever come to me in 13 years because they were worried about someone maybe not getting to hear the gospel. The life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ that we would all agree we all need to hear so desperately. We need it worse than we need the air we breathe. No one has ever come to me because someone just really wasn't getting the opportunity to hear it. No one has ever come to me and sensed that a wearied mother could not hear the gospel because she was trying so hard to keep her child quiet so she didn't irritate people so that she could sit in church just one Sunday and hear the good news of Jesus Christ. So she could find encouragement for an hour of the week that is absolutely certain to be filled with more discouragements than the one before. No one has come to me because they've witnessed the pain and sorrow of another and no one has reached out to them. Look around. This is the family of God. This is the family of Jesus Christ. This is the brothers and sisters of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What is so egregious to you that you cannot get over it enough to reach out to them in love and comfort them with the love of Christ? We must. We don't have a choice in this. And so it forces us into a corner where we have to stand back and we have to say, who really is our family? Who is your family? Who are you called to love with the love of Christ? These. These here. According to the Lord Jesus Christ, this is your family. We are brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're all coming from the same place. We're coming from different situations, but we're all coming as wretches, lost in sin, running to the hope and the glory of the gospel. That's what we are. These who answer the call in gospel obedience and who sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, desiring to drink deeply from his wisdom, not to hoard it, but to share it to the glory of God. And so we, we're faced with a little bit of a dilemma here with Jesus. Will we die to ourselves and grow in grace and faith even with these? your brothers and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is your family? Where is your family? And what are you going to do about it? That's the challenge from the word of God this morning. Let's pray.